Hello podcast listeners and welcome to the November 28th, 2018 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Well, December's almost here and with it the close of the year for 2018. It's winter in Hong Kong and the temperature has dropped significantly. The end of the year is a time for reflection and taking stock on the past 12 months and this week as we're walking through the last of the cold November rain, we'll be listening to Sue Hass's story about how he marks his mother's passing. After Sue Hass's story, we have a second story from Jen about her relationship with her mother and how it's changing. We do appreciate that our storytellers are willing to share these moments of their lives on our stage. Storytelling is amazing at bringing us together and showing us that whatever you're going through, there's someone else who's walking a similar path. Somehow, that makes the world a smaller and more compassionate place. And speaking of smaller places, we'd like to send a warm thank you out to our listeners in our hometown of Hong Kong. We love sharing these moments of our lives with you. Big hellos go out to our listeners in Port Hope in Canada, Shoham in Israel, Becky in Azerbaijan, and Honolulu, Hawaii in the USA. Thanks for tuning in and listening to our stories. Our storytellers are busy practicing for our next live show on the 5th of December 2018 at the Fringe Club. The show has the theme of happy and will be hosted by Gina. Warning, there may be merriment and even some joviality. If you want to find yourself a ticket or you want to know more about Hong Kong Stories, head on over to hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. Now told for the first time on stage in front of a live audience at the September live show, which had the theme, Something Blue, here's Suhas. When I was 19, I carried out the Shraddha, the home of a priest in a two-bedroom apartment that he, that he shares with three others in Little India in Singapore. When I was 21, I performed the Shraddha in a monastery in the middle of Bangkok on the day of the coup that overthrew Thaksin's sister. At 24, I remember doing it in a backyard in a Sikh, in a Sikh temple in a suburb near Jakarta. For all these years, in all these places, I was carrying out the Shraddha, a religious ceremony that I have to do every year, a ceremony that I've done for the last 20 years, a ceremony that when I, when I was young, I remember doing it, I remember praying through tears, because the Shraddha is a ceremony that you have to do to commemorate the death anniversary of a relative. I'm usually seated in front of a priest, wearing just a loincloth, drenched after a cold bucket shower. And I repeat what the priest tells me to. Gangeche Yamunechaiva Godavari Saraswati Narmade Sindhu Kaveri Jalasmin Sanidin Kuru. Bow now to the sky god, he says in that direction. Bow now to the wind god. Bow now to the sun god. And bow now to the god of the ocean. The Shraddha, which is also called the ceremony of purity, happens on the same day, but not the same date, every year, when, according to the Hindu calendar, the stars align so that they're the same as how they were that night, the night my mother died. If you're a Hindu, 
especially if you're a Brahmin, the priestly caste. You have to do the Shraddha every year. But frankly, nowadays it seems like if you're a Hindu, you have to do rituals for pretty much everything. Rituals for a new life, rituals for a new car. It's one puja after the other. Frankly, I grew up hating them. These rituals keep the dying profession of priesthood alive, in my view. During the Shraddha, I listen to the priest drone on and on, and my eyes are closed. In my mind's eye, all the priests that I met over the years blend into one homogenous figure. Portly, tired, knowledgeable about prayers formulated a thousand years past, but self-righteous, short-tempered, eager for a quick rupee. The surroundings are usually sparse. Maybe there's a TV in a glass case somewhere. Maybe there's a fan whirring noisily overhead or a baby wailing somewhere. Um, <clears throat> is your grandfather dead yet? He asks me, bluntly, because the name needs to be part of the prayer. What about your grandmother? What about her mother? What about her mother? What constellation were you born under? What saint does your family follow? Can you recite the Gayatri Mantra? I try hard not to mangle that holy prayer with my accent. The dead are watching, you see, on this day, he tells me. I close my eyes and I mutter my own silent prayer, but it's more like a question. It starts with why. Why did she leave so early? And then how? How does one move on? What am I doing here? Why am I, why am I being reminded of that painful memory? When will we ever move on? My father does the shraddha for his father and I will have to do it for him when he passes away. We are Brahmins, the priestly caste. We are so close to the end of the cycle of birth and rebirth, or so my father thinks. My father thinks that if we don't do the Shraddha, then we'll be punished. And maybe he has a point. Didn't my mother die because he stopped caring about the traditions when we were in Mumbai? Didn't all the problems in our family happen because he stopped doing the Shraddha? That guilt wore him down and transformed him into the religious patriarch that he is today. I don't know if I believe in the spirits, but I still do the Shraddha every year for my father's sake. And at the end of the ceremony, there's a rice. I shape warm cooked rice with my bare hands into six mounds, one for each ancestor. And I place them somewhere where the crows can see. Because if the crows eat the rice, then they'll fly up and take it to the heavens and they can tell the dead that they were served a good meal. Except I don't do it this year. I tell my dad that uh, I just can't do it. I can't find a priest. And uh, frankly, I'm just too busy and too tired from my studies. But honestly, I'm tired of this tradition that's gone on for 20 years now. But he still won't give up. He makes me promise that I at least go to the temple and pray. So I do. I go to the temple in Happy Valley for the Shraddha this year, sometime in April. There's a priest there, a few attendees, the colorful idols of the gods, the, men, the melody of the temple bell. I try to close my eyes and I try to pray, but I can't really focus because I have an interview an hour later nearby. So I'm at this office somewhere in Taiku, and it's, I'm, 
I'm at an office for a job as a journalist, and, and I'm feeling all this pressure, and there is blinding fluorescent light. People are walking in, in the dis people walk, are walking and talking and doing their work in the distance, and I feel so uncomfortable in this suit. And I tell myself that I need to smile. I can't look so dour. I can't look so dead. And up walks this man, my interviewer, and uh, I, I feel like buckling under all this pressure. This man sizing me up with his eyes, my father somewhere else, wondering if I did what I was supposed to do, and the dead were probably watching. Somehow, I managed to do a decent job. I even walk out of the building half an hour later, feeling hopeful. But that, that feeling is short-lived because it soon gets replaced by uh, an uneasy feeling that creeps up in the back of my mind, like I've forgotten something. I cross items off a mental checklist. Uh, I didn't do the Shraddha this year, but at least I went to the temple and prayed. I'm supposed to fast on this day, so I guess I won't be hanging a dinner. But then I remember, at the end of the Shraddha, I'm supposed to donate some money and give some food to holy men. Back home, my father would have laid out a banquet for at least 40 people. I go back to the temple, but it's late. It's sometime in the evening and there's no one there. I don't know how to find a priest at this hour. And I think about leaving a large donation. But then I have a better idea. I call up two of my classmates and I, and I uh, tell them, uh, I need a favor from you guys. Um, just please don't say no. I need to treat you to dinner. And they say, okay, we meet up at a restaurant. I guess they were nice to me over the years, so they counted as holy men in my eyes. We meet at a, we meet at a restaurant. I tell them to order whatever they, whatever they want. They order some naans, a chicken dish, and they drink some beer. My family is vegetarian, and they're teetotalers. So if the dead are watching, then I don't know if they approve, I tell myself. But we have a good time. We talk about, uh, we talk about our lives. We talk about my traditions. We talk about uh, our classes. And uh, I sit there. And after like about half an hour or something, we're we are done. And I, tell the, I request the waiter to just bring me some cooked rice that I'll take away with me. My friends, they go their separate ways, and I decide to go back home. And I think about calling it a night. But I remember that I have one more thing to do. So when I reach home, I go uh, up to the rooftop above the 13th floor. And uh, I go there with a plate of rice. And I go there, and I place the plate of rice on the ledge. When I look up, I see that there are no stars in the sky. Suddenly, my phone rings. It's my father. I pick it up. Suhas, he says, hello, Papa. Did you pray? He asks me. Yes. Did you fast? Yes. Did you leave some rice? Yes. Good. And he hangs up. And the end of that conversation marks 20 years of me fulfilling this tradition, 20 years of me fulfilling my duties as a son. And I go home and sleep. In the morning, when I wake up, I go back to the rooftop to retrieve my plate. But when I get there, the rice is gone. So I tell myself that I guess that'll do for this year, until the next year. When the dead 
will be watching again. There are few things better for the soul when missing someone special than to spend time with friends over a good meal. We love bringing our stories to you through this podcast to feed your ears, and we appreciate all the love we get back from our audiences. If you're in Hong Kong and you want to give storytelling a try, come along to one of our free workshops. These are very informal and held in different locations all over Hong Kong, usually on a Tuesday. Find the details at hongkongstories.com. We know that everyone has stories to tell, and everyone has something to say, so why not come and try it out yourself? If you have a story that really fits our theme, you can pitch it to our show hosts and have a chance to get up on stage at our next live show. Learn all about it at hongkongstories.com. Now, here's a story from Jen from our May 2018 special show called Age of Reckoning about her relationship with her mother and how that's changing. Why am I here? My mom says. This is a place for old people. I look at her as she peers at me through her thick glasses, and I take in her white hair and her lined face. And then I smile apologetically at the two other elderly women sitting across from us in the lunchroom at the nursing home. You live here. Since when? Two weeks now. This is not for me. This is a place for old people. Bernadette from across the table leans forward and says, well, how old are you? And my mom doesn't answer her. She looks at me. She does this a lot when we're out in public now. It's for one of two reasons. Either she hasn't heard the question, or she can't remember the details needed for the answer. You're 73, I tell her. Oh, I'm only 71, says Bernadette cheerfully. You're older than I am. (laughs) My mom grimaces at her and picks up her spoon. So much for conversation and meeting the new neighbors. We start in on our food, and it's pretty plain. Tomato soup, a sandwich, and some formerly frozen vegetables on the side. There is a small piece of cheesecake for dessert, but there's no getting around it. This is institution food. And it makes me feel really guilty, because I've moved my mother into a place where she has to eat institution food. I console myself with the realization that she had been eating much worse than this. About three months before, my sister and I had had to suddenly move my mother out of her apartment because she was calling random relatives, telling them that she didn't recognize things there anymore. She had been up to that point dealing on her own, and it was insistent that she didn't need any help. But that all fell apart when we found out that she was calling her older brother, my Uncle Guy, and telling him that he had to come over right now and take all of our grandmother's furniture out of her apartment. This was a problem because Uncle Guy lived halfway across the country, and also my mother didn't have any of my grandmother's furniture in her apartment. Poor Uncle Guy was also dealing with his own memory issues at that point, so the calls were especially distressing for him. My sister took my mom in while we figured out what to do, and it was my job to clean out her apartment. 
it looked like when I started moving around that mom hadn't been doing much cooking or logical grocery shopping for a while. The fridge was full of rotted produce and had lots of full expired bottles of exotic condiments. The freezer was stuffed with frozen Wonder Bread. In the cupboards, there were multiple packages of crackers and pasta like she'd been trying to stock a bomb shelter. The only open food packages I found were candies and chocolates. And there was one wine glass waiting for her in the drying rack next to the sink. The rest of the apartment was pretty dusty, but was more or less unchanged from the last time I'd been there about five months before. The only new decoration that she'd put up was a calendar in every single room to ward off the forgetting. As she finishes her lunch, we say goodbye to the ladies and go out into the corridor. She stops and looks at me expectantly to lead the way. After two weeks, she still can't remember without prompting where the elevator is and how to get back to her unit. It reminds me of a story that my mum used to tell me about my great-grandmother, Mary Emoff, who lived with mum's family when mum was young. She told me they used to have to lock Mary in her room at night or she'd go off wandering. Mum told me, she used to scare the S-H-I-T out of me. She had this long white hair that hung down to her waist and she wore loose uh, nightgowns. And if she got out of her room, she would come into my room and she'd want to know who I was and whose house this was. One famous story about Mary was that on a winter night, she had gotten out of the house and had walked across the fields and into the cemetery that was near their house. My then teenage uncle guy had been one of the party sent to locate her, and he found her standing outside the shed where the town kept the bodies of people who died in the winter when the ground was too frozen to dig a grave. She was barefoot and was knocking on the door. When asked, she said she was there to welcome the new neighbors. I used to think that was an amusing story. When we get back into my mom's uh, one-bedroom unit, she looks around and she starts shaking her head. She finds it really confusing to see things that she knows belong to her in a place that's unfamiliar. And her confusion makes her frustrated and angry. She turns on me and says, I hope somebody does this to you when you're an old person and can't remember things anymore. I don't have any kids, so I actually think I'll be doing really well if somebody takes it upon themselves to find me a place to live when my mind starts to go. But I don't tell her that. I push down my own frustration and anger, and I consider explaining the situation to her one more time. Then I turn on the TV to distract her. She settles into an armchair, and when she's looking comfortable, I tell her, I'm going to head out now, and I'll be back later. She's engrossed in the program, and she looks relaxed. But I know, when I get back, the first thing she's going to say to me is, why am I in here? Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. Our heartfelt thanks go out to our storytellers and to the host who curated and directed our September show, Mel. We appreciate all the hard work you put into pulling this show together. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell. May your week be filled with warm, fuzzy socks, hot beverages, and a small but perfectly formed surprise. <laughs>